Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're a guest with us today, I want you to know that we're really thankful that you're here. I hope I get a chance to meet you at some point. And uh, I want to invite everybody now to turn with me in a Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 here in a few moments as we continue our sermon series entitled Incomplete. That's us. We're the incomplete ones. And uh, the good news is, though, we are finding in Christ everything that is missing in us. This morning, we find in Christ uh, the thing that we are most missing and in most need of. Um, and so I'm excited to look at this passage together this morning. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for your grace. We thank you and praise you that you are at work among us through your Holy Spirit, that you are at work among our neighbors and even the nations. Thank you for these exciting reports of what you're doing in East Asia, Croatia. Lord, you are so good and gracious to us. And so we do pray now that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to see the glory of Christ and our union with him. See the need we had and the way you met that need for us. Because you love us and you're merciful and you did it all in Christ. And so would you help that to be clear this morning as we look at this passage. And use this time, Lord, we pray, to um, not only help us to know you more, but to make us more equipped and excited to continue our mission to make disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting how in something that's very simple, you can actually see a part of human nature um, think about this. We, m- most of you have experienced this. I know I have. If you've ever had a, a moment where you are trying to open a jar 
maybe a, a pickle jar, and you just can't do it, and you grab the little rubber thing, and that just you still just can't do it. And so, um, because you really want that pickle, you give that jar to someone else. And when they take it and pop it open, three words come out of your mouth. I loosened it. Okay, so that's happened to all of us. Now, just think about the where does that come from and how indicative that is of the human spirit, this sort of unwillingness to wrestle with helplessness. Like even in opening a pickle jar, we feel compelled to say, well, I loosened it. And you know that you didn't. But still there's that, that feeling like I did something, right? And uh, that's, I think that's an important thing for us to connect with, that reality that we hate the idea of helplessness. We like to think that we can at least do something. Uh, when, it's an important thing to connect with as we look at this passage here because what Paul is going to teach us here is that there is, there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God, to be at one with God. It's all of God's grace. If God doesn't do it all, uh, none of it will happen. We're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God in our salvation. That's a beautiful word for his control, that he's completely in control. And as we look at this, that is going to help us understand the depth of his love and the radical nature of his mercy and his grace to us. So our focus for this morning is this, that embracing the sovereignty of God in salvation enables us to more deeply grasp the grace of God in Christ. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning, that we would learn that embracing the sovereignty of God in salvation enables us to more deeply grasp the grace of God in Christ. And to do that, I want to talk about three things that Paul discusses here. Number one, we'll talk about spiritual death, uh, which is the condition of all humanity by nature. Number two, resurrection life, what God does for us in Christ, all by himself, without our help, one bit. And then third, amazing grace. Um, So spiritual death, resurrection life life and amazing grace. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open. Look at verses one through three and let's talk about spiritual death. Here's what Paul is getting at in these first few verses, that all people, so all over the world, all throughout all time, every place, everywhere, all people are by nature spiritually dead and in desperate need of God's grace. Very important for us to understand. All people are by nature spiritually dead and in desperate need of God's grace. Let's look at this passage here. Verse 1, here's where he says it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind. Okay. He's teaching us that all people everywhere are spiritually dead. What does that mean? What does he mean you're dead in your trespasses and sins? I think one of the ways to understand what it means to be spiritually dead is a person who is spiritually dead is unable and unwilling to trust God or obey God. There's an inability to know God as he is and to trust him and to obey him. And what he's getting at here is he's saying, and you, and he's 
speaking to them as Gentiles, but then he'll also say, and we all want, so he's including the Jews, so he's thinking of Jews and Gentiles, he's thinking of all people, apart from the grace of God, are by nature spiritually dead. Dead to who God is. Dead to his glory. And instead, here's where it gets worse, not only are we by nature spiritually dead and unable, unwilling to know God, trust God, but we also are following after these other influences. Often we don't even know it. He says, uh, following the course of this world. So we are highly influenced by the broken systems of the world. He says, following the prince of the power of the air. That's his way of referring to the devil. So we are highly influenced by the lies of the devil. And often we don't even realize it. And then, of course, he says, uh, following uh, the, the, where is he at? the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of our body and of the mind. And so he's talking about our flesh, our, the, the natural urges of our body and, and the thoughts that we have in our mind. You know, we often think we're in control, but we're actually not. We're under the, the, the strong influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all the stems from the lies of the devil, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that in their case, he's referring to the non-believer here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it's the same concept there. That's another way of understanding what it means to be spiritually dead. You're blind to who God is. So all people, apart from the grace of God, unless God does something, all people are by nature spiritually dead. And in that spiritual deadness, we listen to the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil, and then we act on those things, which then leads us to be under the wrath of God. Look at the rest of verse 3 there where he says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I know that we don't, in our contemporary society, we don't like that word wrath. You know, we, we, that, that's, there's a struggle there. We don't like that idea that God is, that he has judgment against people's sin. And we definitely don't want him to have judgment against our sin. It's a terrifying thought. In fact, sometimes people will say, well, I just believe in a God of love. I just believe in God of love. But the problem with that is, if, you, if we had a God who is all love and never any anger or wrath against sin, how does that God of love feel about Hitler? How does that God of love feel about systemic racism? How does that God of love feel about oppression, slavery? Ah, then it's like, okay, no, wait, I'm okay with God being against injustice, right? Do you know why you care about justice? Because you're made in the image of God and God cares about justice. Our problem is, since we're so blinded by the world and the flesh and the devil, our understanding of justice is super skewed. But God, who loves us, is revealing to us in his word, he cares about justice. And so he has wrath and anger towards sin. When his people mistreat one another, that does rightfully cause him to be angry and to have judgment. Now, the good news is, as we've been talking about in this series, the judgment he has for our sins, if we believe, he has poured out upon Christ. Okay, and we'll talk more about that. But the point is, we have a God who does care about injustice. He does have wrath against our sin, and that puts us in this terrible predicament because we 
are dead to God by nature, and therefore we're listening to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we, following these things, we end up sinning, and then we deserve judgment for those sins. So you know the show, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? If you remember that show, it was a show, it was a quiz show, and you would go on the show, and you would have all these questions sequentially, and if you answered all of them, you would get a million dollars, and along the way, if you had a, if you didn't, know the answer, you could um, ask for a lifeline. Remember those? One of them was phone a friend. You could actually call your friend, see if they knew the answer. Uh, then you could, you could ask the audience. You could poll the audience and they would vote. And you could also have them remove half of the wrong answers. And so um, you, if you don't remember that show, it's a good show. But here's the thing. There's an episode that aired in the French version a few years ago. Okay? In the French version of this show, an episode aired and something interesting happened and a few people have written about it. Here's what happened. The contestant was answering questions, and it was one of the early questions, which are usually the easy ones. And he was asked this question, what revolves around the earth? And the possible answers were the sun, the moon, Mars, or Venus. So he's asked that question, what revolves around the earth? The sun, the moon, Mars, or Venus? Okay, I just saw a child give his mom the answer, and I bet she's right. Um... Now, for whatever reason, this man panicked and, and decided he needed help. So he decides to ask the audience. And he says, I'm going to ask the audience. And so the audience votes. And it came back that 52% of the, uh, uh, of the audience had voted for the sun. Now, before you go thinking French people are not the brightest bulbs in the box... That's actually not why they did it. What happened is they looked back and talked to people about this because obviously more than half the audience voted the wrong answer. And they said the reason was fairness. They felt if he doesn't know the answer to this question, I'm not going to help him. (laughs) And they intentionally lied to him. And he went with it. And he lost. Okay. Now you can say all you want. But they lied. They lied. They lied. Yes, but he bought it. And listen now. When it comes to our state as human beings, it's very similar. That we are lied to by the world and by the flesh and by the devil. And we buy it. And then we act on it, and then we do deserve God's judgment. And one of the reasons it's so important that we understand this is it it helps us understand that all humanity is in the same in this sense. Uh, People from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, we all have the same fundamental problem. Apart from the grace of God, we are spiritually dead influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and therefore living out those sins that leads to a constant state of sin and misery for the world. We all have the same problem, and there's only one solution for everybody in the world, and that being Christ. And so even like when you think about if you were asked, what's, what's the biggest problem of the world? You might say, well, human starvation or oppression or I think terrorism is the worst thing, or I think racism is the worst thing, or I think poverty is the biggest problem with in the earth, or global warming, or patriarchy, you name it. 
Those are all symptoms. The problem is that humanity is spiritually dead and cannot do anything. And if God does not do anything, that's the way we stay. Okay? That's bad news. Is there good news? Yes! Yes, let's continue on. Let's talk about resurrection life. Look at verses 4 through 7. Okay, this is where Paul turns this corner after giving this incredibly sad, tragic estate of all of humanity. He says these two incredible words, but God. And here's what he's going to teach us in verses 4 through 7. God has chosen to graciously save some of fallen humanity by sovereignly uniting them to Christ through faith and raising them from spiritual death. Here's how he says it. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, okay, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Don't you love how Paul just can't wait? He's going to say this again later, but he just has this little explosion of doxology. By grace, you have been saved. And then he comes back into it and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what he's doing He's, he's, saying, he's showing us how God has sought to have mercy on us because he loves us with this great love. And the way he did it is he's united us to Christ. That's why he's saying, made us alive with Christ. Uh, he has raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ. And we've talked about this union that we have a couple times now in this series, and it's so important that we see it here. God has sought to mercifully unite us to his Son so that... His death, that's a death that pays for sin. That's now our death that pays for sin. But here he's focusing on the fact that his resurrection from the dead, which proves to us that Christ has accomplished all that he set out to accomplish, that we are forgiven through faith. But that resurrection is also indicative of our resurrection, our spiritual resurrection. That by God uniting us to his son, we too now have been resurrected. But we've been resurrected spiritually. So we are spiritually alive. Meaning we can trust God. We can know God. We can see he's good. We can see the glory of God in Christ. Because he, without our involvement, united us to his son and raised us to life. Why? Is it something in us, Paul? Was there, was there something about us? Are we better than the others? Is it, is it, is it, what? Here's what he says. So that. Here's why, believer, believer, God raised you from the dead. Not because of something in you, but so that he could show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting something you have not earned and you do not deserve And that's what Paul is saying, that for the rest of time and all eternity, God's going to continue to show how gracious he is, having forgiven us rebels. And he did it without our help. We didn't do anything. We didn't loosen it. In fact, you know, um, they, they remade the movie Aladdin, right? And, uh, there's debate on which version is better. 
And I, I really like both versions, and I have the same favorite scene in both of them. Okay, think of Aladdin. He was this riffraff street rat, even though he didn't buy that. Um, and he, w- you know, he, he, he found this lamp, or he got a hold of this lamp, and he has these wishes, and the genie's going to grant him three wishes. And so he, his first wish is to be a prince. And then, um, do you know he didn't make a second wish? Do you remember that? Here's what happens. Jafar, the bad guy, uh, ties him up and throws him into the ocean. And he sinks down, 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 all his breath leaving his body. He is drowning. He is incapacitated. And it just so happens that his hand rubs against that lamp and the genie comes out and starts saying, Aladdin, wake up, Aladdin. Aladdin, wake up. You have to make a wish. You got a wish. You got to make a wish. Wish that I can save you. You got to do that. But it's too late. Aladdin is completely unable, completely incapable. So the movie ends. No. The genie saves him. The genie saves him, right? In the new version, has him kind of moves his hand to write something there uh, on uh, the, the signing of, of his wish or something. But the genie does it. The genie does it all. And then when he gets him up out of the water and he gasps for air and he's okay now and he's back to life, he says, we did it, genie. No. He says, thank you, because he knows that he was completely unable. He was completely helpless. He didn't loosen it. He couldn't do anything. And God, but God, who is rich in mercy, That's how we understand this. That's, how, that's why I love that scene. It's a scene of God's mercy raising us from the dead in Christ. It's a scene, it's a scene that reminds us that we could do nothing, so God united us to Christ on his own and raised us to life and gave us faith. And you might say, well, what about my faith? Like, didn't I put my faith in Christ? Yes, you did. We'll talk about that in a minute. You really did. But understanding that God does this, he raises us to life through Christ, through uniting us to Christ, is huge because, you know, earlier we were talking about how the whole world has the same problem. The whole world has the same fundamental problem, spiritual deadness. And so the, same, the whole world has the, the same solution, and that is salvation by grace through faith in Christ, which is why we want people in East Asia preaching the gospel, which is why we want people going to Croatia preaching the gospel. It's why we care about the unreached people groups. It's why we care about doing ministry in Haiti. It's why we're thankful that people came here to preach the gospel. Because it's through the gospel that God gives that faith and connects people to Christ and raises them from the dead. So, good news. Uh, if you are a believer, it is because God raised you from the dead by uniting you to Christ. If you're a non-believer, good news. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be forgiven. You will be redeemed. And God will also show you that that faith itself was even a gift. Let's talk about amazing grace. Look at verses 8 through 10. Amazing Grace. Here's where Paul shows us that even our faith through which we receive salvation and then any good works that accompany our faith are gracious gifts from God as well. It is all grace. See, sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that God graciously forgives us, but then I have to keep myself in. God lets me in for free, but then I have to keep myself in by what I do. And Paul's going to head us off at the pass and make sure that we don't believe that showing us that both the faith through which we receive salvation and the good works that we do later that accompany that salvation, it's all gifts of God. Look what he says, verse 8. For by grace 
You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. By grace, by unmerited favor, by something you haven't earned, you haven't deserved. You have been saved through faith. And this, what is he talking about when he says this? Some people say, well, he must be talking about salvation because faith is something we do. Others are saying, no, he's talking about faith. Well, let's just nerd out grammatically. The word this is in the neuter and saved and faith are both in the feminine. And so to put it together, he's either talking about both or neither. Okay, nerding over. But he's talking about both. He's saying that the salvation and even the faith that we have, it's your faith, but God gave it to you as a gift. Just like a kid gets a bill from his parents, a dollar bill or maybe a, maybe a hundred dollar bill for his parents to put in the offering plate. Right? That kid who gets the money from the parent to put it in the offering plate, it's not his money. But the parent said, here, here, you can have this so you can participate in the offering. And then that kid definitely participates in that offering because of the gift. Faith is something God gives to us as a gift. He, he unites us. First, he chose us way before time, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Then he unites us to Christ. Then he gives us the faith so that we know about it as a gift. So we can't even say, well, I'm proud of myself because I put my faith in Christ. No one can boast, he says. So even that gift, or even that faith is a gift from God. And so are the good works. Look at verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. By that way, that word created, uh, it's from the root word of poem. Beautiful. Okay, so we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, he's talking about even these good works that we do, even the way that we, we begin uh, through faith, we begin to see who God is, we begin to trust him, and we begin to seek to live by his ways and reject the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Even as we do those things, those things are not earning us something from God, our place with God. It's really we're experiencing God's power to transform lives. God's power to take people who lived according to these lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and free them by raising them to life and then set them forward by preparing a whole bunch of things for them to do, these good things that don't earn us our place with God, but rather help us experience who he is. He's a God of transforming grace. And he set these things up beforehand. Think about that. Every good thing you'll ever do, he set it up for you because he loves you. And he wants to use you in the redemption of the world, in the news going around of the redemption of the world. So, okay, uh, think about my daughter, Lydia. I love listening to my daughter, Lydia, play the piano. Okay, And the thing is, uh, I hear her every week because Emily Johnson, who some of you know, she comes and she teaches uh, piano to our children. And I love sitting there listening to all my children. But I was thinking about this the other day as I was watching Lydia play the piano. Uh, Lydia is not... I, when I see Lydia playing the piano, I'm not thinking, uh, she, better, she better get this right or she's done. No, I'm thinking, I'm so glad Hannah thought to set this up for her. Because I'm watching her grow as a musician. I'm watching her experience something we set up for her. 
That's how we have to understand these good works. Because, so we still have a whole other chapter before Paul's going to tell us to do anything other than remember. Okay, but when he does, when he starts to tell us what God would have us do, we have to understand it is not a matter of him saying, you've got to do these things or else, but rather, here's the person God is making you to be. Here's the transformation God is bringing about in your life. And to believe that the God who graciously has forgiven us is now graciously also uh, uh, enabling us to do these good things that he has set up for us so that we experience his power of transforming grace. I was thinking about this as I read one of the things that somebody wrote on uh, the, about the fears of our incompleteness. Somebody wrote something, and once again, I thought, did I write that? Okay, here's what they wrote. They said, I'm self-absorbed. It gets in the way of my relationships with those I love. That's what the person wrote. I'm self-absorbed. It gets in the way of the relationships with those I love. And again, I could have wrote that because I'm self-absorbed. And it gets in the way of my relationships with the people that I love. And so I got two options in that moment. I can think, oh, God is never going to love me until I get this right. He's never going to approve of me until I get this right. And I'm never going to be able to get it right because I'm on my own which, by the way, would be buying into the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Or I can believe the truth, and I can believe God has chosen me. He has sent his son for me. He has united me to his son. His death paid for my sin. His resurrection brought me to life. I am spiritually alive, and now by his spirit I can trust him. I, am, I can know him, and he will transform me. He will lead me. I don't have to stay self-absorbed. I can actually become more like my Savior, who is so other-focused. It's... Unbelievable. That's good news, right? So think about it like this. As we, again, we got a whole other chapter, so we're going to, those imperatives, those commands, are, we still got a while. But when they come, we want to see them as God inviting us forward into that transformation, almost as if he's saying to all his little calipiters, get into the chrysalis. And as Amanda's beautiful painting out there shows us, once that caterpillar goes into the chrysalis, there's a transformation and it comes out, this beautiful butterfly. And God loves us enough not only to save us from our sin, but also to make us more like his son. So over the next few weeks, as we continue to uh, absorb all this beautiful truth, gospel truth, and preparing our hearts then to trust God when he begins to say, to do these certain things or avoid these certain things, we want to be ready to hear him simply lovingly saying, come on, caterpillars, come on, caterpillars, come on in, get into this chrysalis. And he'll do a work in us and transform who we are. And as we live those different lives, then we'll look back and we'll be like, wait a second, Paul told us that God set this up beforehand. So just like in our salvation, even for our good works, God gets all the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word and revealing to us in your word who you are, what you're like. Thank you for revealing to us our desperate need as well as your sovereign work. And graciously, because of the great love with which you loved us, having mercy on us, by uniting us to your Son and raising us to spiritual life, would you, Holy Spirit, help us live alive all for your glory and for our joy and for the advance of the gospel, both to our neighbors and to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.